HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. I love fall. I think it's the best season of the year because things are mellowing. Fall is a great time to grow things. It's a time to harvest and to like move indoors, but it's also still a great time for planting. And if you're in the Northeast um, and even in the Southeast a little bit later, you can still plant things in the ground. Garlic, onions, all kinds of greens. You can get a second season from them. So you don't have to stop gardening outside just yet if you don't want to. However, if you only have indoor space or very limited um, outdoor space and you kind of want to bring it inside, one of the things that you can do is take cuttings, which means snipping off the best parts of the plant and rooting them in either water or soil. And what you're basically doing is making a carbon copy of the mother plant That was Carmen DeVito on a recent episode of The Big Food Question. Carmen is a garden designer based in Brooklyn, New York, and the co-host of our show, We Dig Plants. To hear the full episode about at-home gardening, check out episode 15 of The Big Food Question. This entire year has been one huge change after another, forcing us all to take a deeper look at how we used to live and how we're going to live in the future. This week, we'll investigate how COVID-19 has affected the way mothers balance work and life. Then we sit in on a conversation from HRN's Queer the Table that breaks down assumptions about the audience for food writing and restaurant reviews. We shift into the fall season with pumpkin spice and the implications that come with such basic trends. And then we travel to UT Austin to hear how dining has changed on campus since the pandemic struck. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Our first story this week examines the additional responsibilities parents have been tasked with during the pandemic. From the supervision of virtual schoolwork to what can feel like an ever-growing pile of dirty dishes. Dylan Hoyer takes a look at the invisible labor that moms are taking on and the consequences our nation faces as a result. 
865,000 women left the workforce in the month of September, an event that some say qualifies as the first ever female recession. Women-dominated industries have been hit particularly hard during the pandemic, with Black and Latina women facing the highest levels of unemployment. We've witnessed large numbers of layoffs in the education, healthcare, and elder care sectors, all dominated by women, as well as in the hospitality industry, in which women account for 70% of servers. Other women have left their jobs due to uncompromising circumstances surrounding childcare, for example. Society has provided no public policy solutions, no support, no, no blueprint, no livable uh, solutions for families, and everybody's left to figure it out on their own. So framing it as a personal choice, I think, is very American. Meet Katherine Goldstein, a journalist and the creator and host of The Double Shift, a podcast about a new generation of working mothers. People felt like issues that affect mothers would only ever be of interest to mothers, and that's the experience I've had as a journalist. But people are starting to understand that um, issues that affect mothers actually affect the entire society. The jarring numbers that are now garnering public attention about women's exodus from the workforce don't even account for those who've reduced their hours, turned down a promotion, or taken a leave of absence. Experts believe we'll be experiencing the impacts of this troubling trend for generations to come. For the time being, Catherine is dedicated to raising awareness about how we got to this point and what needs to change. I think that the the labor at home, you know, f- from endless cooking and dishes and cleaning to now um, the hellscape that is virtual school for so many parents, I think that we hear a lot about, you know, protecting everyone's health during COVID. And I think that public health is a huge priority, but there we haven't yet devoted enough time and resources to understanding the mental health implications of what we are asking parents. And specifically, we need to look at what we're asking of mothers. While more men than ever are in support of women's equality in the workforce, labor at home remains unequally distributed. One survey conducted during the pandemic found that only 44% of mothers feel household responsibilities are split evenly with their partner. But 70% of fathers say they're doing equal work. Even though many fathers feel like they're doing a lot, there's still a huge amount of invisible labor that they are not really comprehending that is being done that benefits them and their family. A vicious cycle forms in which men make more money on average and thus their work is more highly valued. As a result, women take on more of the household and childcare responsibilities. And it turns out this extra time spent on domestic labor is one of the leading causes of the pay gap. The current status quo isn't going to work and is not sustainable, so um, people are having to make pretty radical life adjustments. One form of domestic labor that has certainly increased during the pandemic is cooking, a responsibility along with grocery shopping that is primarily handled by mothers. I think for some people, we're in a time where food can take on some creativity, it can provide comfort, and for other people, it's definitely um, an additional chore sort of with no relief in sight. This sentiment is probably familiar to anyone who's been preparing most of their own food during the pandemic. Cooking can feel like a welcome outlet one day and a source of fatigue the next. But parents face additional hurdles when trying to get breakfast, lunch, and dinner onto their kids' plates. I think that the realities are most parents are in some ways are cooking 
some separate things for their kids. Um, there are a few lucky parents where their kids will eat absolutely everything they eat, but you know, especially with really young kids, there might not, there's just like not any coaxing in the world that can get them to eat like a spicy curry. So I think um, the sort of added added mental space of making sure you have the food that kids, that your kids will will eat, what are the paths of least resistance, what are the battles you really want to pick. So for a lot of parents, food is actually a source of conflict and a battle. As far as Catherine's personal life goes, she is grateful for the opportunities during the pandemic that have allowed food to truly feel like a source of care and comfort. So I gave birth to twins a month before the pandemic started, and um, our friends uh, very kindly set up a meal train, and we basically had our friends feed us for the first three months of our um, twins' life, and, you know, well into the, you know, a couple of months into the pandemic. And that provided, I think, both like such a logistical respite because we were completely overwhelmed, but also like a real sense of nourishment. I got a lot of sense of being cared for by people bringing us food during that time. Catherine's network filled a role that can't be taken for granted. Not every mother is lucky enough to receive such support. And Catherine is already back to meal prep that has quickly become monotonous. You know, now we're back to sort of cooking for ourselves. And sometimes it just feels like, what is the dish that I can make that will last for the most number of meals? Like, there's not a lot of thought and creativity beyond that. There are strategies for sidestepping boredom in the kitchen, just as there are opportunities for fathers to pitch in more often. But the problems mothers are facing run much deeper, begging the question of whether a work-life balance is possible to achieve at all. Catherine believes we need to invest more money in schools so they can reopen safely and is confident that getting the virus under control would be the biggest boost to our economy and our labor force. She also has more creative ideas for what she calls bailing out mothers. An idea that came to me when I was in the throes of having newborn twins was that we should, um, there should be a national effort similar to an AmeriCorps or a Peace Corps of potentially college graduate, you know, uh, young people who are looking for employment or people who are taking time off of school um, to employ them in the patriotic effort of caring for our the next generation. So that could be um, in small group settings, uh, staffing, you know, YMCA type centers to help with virtual learning, um, providing, you know, fam uh, direct uh, babysitting to uh, the children of, of frontline workers. 40% of all child care centers in the U.S. report being at risk of closing their doors permanently, which could exacerbate the current crisis mothers face long after the pandemic ends. Much like the conversations we have on HRN about bailing out independent restaurants, providing relief to mothers will require reevaluating our social, cultural, and political priorities. This certainly does not solve all of the care issues that we face, but um, this could be a stopgap to sort of bridge a better care future. And I think it would give caring more value. And it, both men and women could do it, and it could be seen as something that has value and takes real skill and grit and determination rather than something that is totally sort of invisible and unvalued. 
Waiting to act puts us all at risk of losing women's invaluable contributions to the workforce. Find recent op-eds by Katherine Goldstein as well as a link to her podcast in the show notes. In our next story, we look toward a different kind of transition, one that has only just begun. We're talking about the world of food writing and the reinvention of the restaurant critique. While this past year has been one of anti-racist reform, there is a regressive approach to the way food is written about that the industry just can't seem to kick. We turn to Nico Whistler's discussion with Soleil Ho on the HRN show Queer the Table. As the San Francisco Chronicle food critic, Soleil is reassessing reader perspective and assumption to change the way we talk about food. One of the first pieces I read when you started at the Chronicle was, I'm forgetting the title, but it was something along the lines of like, these are words that you, that I will not use as a food <laughs> critic. You like, you got rid of the star rating system and talked about like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food and and really went beyond that too. You know, you have an idea of what a restaurant critic is and that just didn't seem like that was who I was. You know, Michael Bauer had been there for over 30 years. And so there was very much an idea of what like the San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic role was. I kind of had to make it all up on my own because the models that are out there are pretty straight. Not like straight sexually, but more just like um, the ones who determined the genre were not quite the people that I wanted to emulate. I respect them a lot, but that's just not the kind of writing that I do, you know? But I think that we all are speaking from alternative perspectives. And you look at history, the hegemonic perspective has often been one kind right. of like, you know, heteropatriarchal capitalist white supremacist perspective. And you know, I think that being honest about where I'm coming from is exposing the lie of that. And so when you talk about this idea of like, yeah, anyone without a white straight male of class privilege identity is automatically assumed to be writing from bias or from experience. And like somehow, you know, white straight men are objective is (laughs) wild to me. But I also I wonder in what ways you do feel yourself bringing your identities to your role or not? I think for me, the most potent way that I can kind of exercise this in ways that are meaningful is just the act of centering. You know, who am I centering in this writing? What perspective is normal or considered normal when I'm writing this sentence or this phrase or this comparison? And who am I speaking to? And I think for so long, You know, you're asked, especially in newspaper writing, right? You're asked to write to the subscriber. You're asked to write to the mass audience. But when you start asking questions of like, who does this person look like? What do they um, eat for breakfast? Where do they get their coffee? All of this stuff matters. Um, Do they know what an omelet is? Do they know what a El Pastor taco is? So for instance, if I am going to write about a particular pastry, do I compare it to something French, something American, something Cantonese, something Korean? Um, When I'm talking about textures, what is the analog that I can bring in that would be evocative for the most people? Or at least, can I use other language to massage this so that 
everyone can understand, even if they don't know one or two words in this phrase. Soleil plays with identity of the reader to broaden the accessibility of her writing. She challenges the idea of common knowledge to dispel the historic myth that the critics' points of reference are superior to the readers. To hear more about Soleil's writing, listen to episode 15 of Queer the Table. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to Meat and Three. With the transition into fall comes the transition into the season of pumpkin spice. Up next, Alicia Chan explores the current evolution of the pumpkin spice craze, along with its societal implications. If you've walked into a grocery store, any grocery store, in the past month, chances are you've been confronted with shelves of pumpkin spice everything. They've got pumpkin spice pretzels, pumpkin spice candles, and even pumpkin spice deodorant. A trend that started in the kitchen is now trickling into all aspects of life. But even more prevalent than its fan base is the general hatred that people have for the popular blend. It's become synonymous with this idea of the basic bitch. This is Jaya Saxena author and staff writer at the website Eater. And sort of this very, you know, this middle-class white woman, extremely mainstream tastes. The term basic bitch is almost exclusively associated with black leggings, a pair of Uggs, and a piping hot pumpkin spice latte on a crisp autumn day. An image that, at best, is peak aesthetic. At worst, it's an ideal that stems from a culture that capitalizes on insecurities, telling women how they should look, how they should act, and even what they should eat. Jaya describes how markedly feminine trends... I'm thinking of rosé, of cupcakes, um, of pumpkin spice... ...tend to be seen as unserious or frivolous. For women, seems to imply delicate and self-indulgent. In contrast, masculine trends like meat and salt and smoke are marked as rightfully popular. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. But, you know, we have tied all of these associations and meanings to it by living in, you know, this patriarchal gendered society. You know, we've created a situation in which you can't think of a pumpkin spice latte 
as just another drink or just another product. It comes with all of these societal implications around it. You know, liking something like a pumpkin spice latte comes with an entire image of who you must be. So is it possible to avoid such problematic associations? How are we supposed to separate ourselves and what we eat from something that's so deeply ingrained in American culture? I mean, if there is a solution to this problem, I think the larger one is uh, divorcing society from patriarchy and white supremacy and heteronormativity and all of these other um, structures that we've built up that are totally false. Um, I think on an individual level, it's just reminding yourself that food has no gender. It may be an uphill battle, but Jaya has faith that if anything, our taste buds are the one thing we can definitely trust. You know, your taste buds are almost this great democratizer, where if you taste something and you like it, there's only so much that society can influence what you like. You know, your mouth is going to tell you if you think it's good or you think it's bad. And you should just let yourself have the opportunity to have that be as many things as possible. And to all the pumpkin spice lovers out there, if you enjoy smelling like pumpkin spice, go for it. I can't say that I want to smell like pumpkin spice. Um, but again, you know, that's, that's your life. And if that's something that brings you joy, yeah, far be it for me to tell you to not do it. <laughs> So next time you hesitate before buying something with pumpkin spice plastered on the label, think twice. And then get it anyways. Because it's about time we transitioned away from society's arbitrary labels and lean towards a world where we can enjoy a latte without worrying about being called basic. For more from Jaya, you can find the link to her new book, Crystal Clear, Reflections on Extraordinary Talismans for Everyday Life, in the show notes. A few weeks ago, Meet and 3 heard from individuals who are preparing campus dining programs across the country for a fall semester amid a pandemic. But what did those plans actually look like once they were applied? Armin Spingen gives us a taste of how things unfolded. Before the coronavirus pandemic struck, college dining halls were a place for students to waste time, mingle with friends, and often grab more food than they could chew. But after the emergence of COVID-19, the way students interacted with dining halls needed to pivot quickly. Safety needed to become the top priority. Thanks to student and staff efforts to observe new dining guidelines at the University of Texas at Austin, that transition has been smoother than expected. They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. That's Eric Geiger. Senior Director of Dining and Catering at UT. Everything from establishing social distancing protocols, portable hand sinks were brought out into the uh, entrance area so while they're in line they could wash their hands, uh, and then separating entrances and exits. Obviously, we also eliminate all self-service, and every location is a to-go operation, uh, which means that we're switching to single-use containers. Colleges from across the country organized by the National Association of College and University Food Services, or NACUFs, banded together last spring to share best practices. These discussions provided invaluable resources and helped UT plan for the fall semester. 
Rene Rodriguez, the director of dining at UT, stressed the importance of maintaining CDC guidelines while simultaneously handling the flow and demand of hungry students. So our biggest task was to separate our seating areas from our serving line, which allowed us more student uh, output in regards to the number of students that we could actually be serving at the same time. So taking into consideration 25% in the serving area had nothing to do with the 25% in the seating area when we separated those two locations. While safety might be the primary concern, that doesn't mean that some of the changes we make as a result of the pandemic can't be fun. As we kind of got warmed up and it got into October, our Vice President of Student Affairs and our Associate Vice President for Housing and Dining challenged us to you know, be creative. So outside events, they come by a station and they can uh, enjoy something that's different, that's packaged for them to go. So you're engaging them, but they got to keep going. So it's kind of like this conga line and it's making it fun. We recently celebrated the Texas State Fair, which was canceled this year. But we created like eight different stations where they could come by, get different food items, pick up some swag, hear some live music. Uh, they got to see the cheerleaders. Uh, it, it was a great time. It's almost a drive-through party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. walk-through party. And uh, it, it really has uh, allowed students to feel that there's still some type of event going on that they get to experience a little bit. Eric and Renee say that as long as students maintain social distance and mask up when they're not eating, there are still opportunities to enjoy each other's company. Eating is meant to be a social experience. Thanks to the responsibility of students and staff, people can continue to enjoy things like college dining, albeit with some changes. Sometimes these changes can help us to rethink the way we do things for the better. That's our show. Thanks for listening to this transformative episode. Special thanks this week to Emily Kunkel, Armin Spingen, and Alicia Chan. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just would like to say hi, you can write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.